Hello and welcome back to Biology Bobbles, the very best podcast for knowing the things you didn't need to. In today's episode, we're going to deviate from that traditional formula and instead talk about something very relevant and very important, which, whether you like it or not, is happening right now and is being racist right now. Joining me, I have Roshni Desai, the wonderful co-lead of the Society of Conservation Biology Education Committee, as well as... And I'm also a biology major, and I'm in the concurrent education program at Queen's. Biology and, I guess, Augustus, all of them are big passions of mine. Yeah, I think, especially in in the biology front, education is definitely, you guys are going to be putting the weight of progress on your shoulders and changing the world while the rest of us just throw up the numbers. What I hope to do, for sure. Uh Uh-huh. Fingers crossed for all of us. Um, Yeah. For myself, when the George Floyd civil rights movement began, uh, as a white person doing what I can to educate myself, I was, as you might expect from a white person educating themselves, confronted with a very real and very uncomfortable reality of my own privilege. Now that I, now I don't believe that white guilt should be a feeling that someone should feel just for being white, but I do believe that a degree of shame should be associated with being presented the opportunity to educate yourself and change and meeting that with fragility and refusal. That's no good. So listeners, you're on the right track. Pat yourselves on the back. Doing good. Doing doing, doing right as <laughs> God intended. Therefore, I wanted to make this Biology Bobbles episode for all the people, white, black, Christian, atheist, Hispanic, vegan, whatever, who want to do what they can to be anti-racist in one more way. Building off of that, part of appropriately addressing my white privilege to me includes knowing that I cannot know, and I think it would be incredibly presumptuous and ignorant to have a white guest on the show, so thank you, Roshni. I'm I'm counting on you to make sure I I don't do what straight white people have done so well in history (laughs) and silence, silence everybody but themselves. It's my pleasure to be here. So, jumping right in. I'd like to introduce the concepts of environmental justice alongside a very real uh, example of environmental racism. And there are many, 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 many. But in this case, we're just going to focus on New River, North Carolina. Uh, The New River is a river in the southeastern North Carolina, 80 kilometers long, and empties into the Atlantic Ocean. It rises in northwestern Onslow County and flows east-southeast past Jacksonville, where it widens into a tidal estuary approximately two miles wide. Jacksonville is a modest community, largely military-based, with a population that is about 25% Black, which is about 60% greater than the national average. It's a young city, with the average population being 23 years old, and it was the first jurisdiction to adopt a paid holiday honoring the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. In 1995, hog waste lagoons to the north overflowed and released 26 million gallons of manure into the New River. So we're, we're, we're jumping right in. Yeah. Yikes is, yeah, that's get used to saying and hearing that word because wow, this is, we're we're starting with the small fry. It's, I I think the story of of New River is one that as with all the stories that I, that I represent here are ones that can just give a very personal understanding of exactly how human the environmental racism crisis is. Yeah. So I'm just going to talk along the the main points of environmental racism and the science that that went into developing it as a science alongside the story of New River, North Carolina, and uh, what happened there, how it happened, and how nothing has really changed since. Sounds great. Yeah. So uh, buckle up. Yes. Ready. Yes. All right. Brace, Brace yourself. Hold on to your socks. All that. 
Environmental racism was largely conceptualized by a report written by the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice, published in 1987, titled Toxic Wastes and Race. In a chapter of this report, written by the iconic environmental justice warrior, Professor Robert D. Bullard writes that, quote, the environmental justice framework attempts to uncover the underlying assumptions that may contribute to and produce unequal protection. The report is particularly monumental because it found race to be the number one variable in predicting where commercial hazardous waste facilities were located in the U.S. above household income, education, and property value. The compilation of essays and statistics originally published in 1987 was revisited in 2007, titled Toxic Wastes and Race at 20, to remind people that very little had actually changed after being given more data in 2000, as census reports got more and more accurate and such. Uh, the reports showed, as you'd expect, that the problem was worse than the 1987 report originally predicted. Have you heard of Robert D. Bullard before? Yes, I have. Oh, good. Uh, um, very briefly, though, I took a I took a course in second year about environmental mm -hmm. toxicology, and we learned well. Briefly, spoke about him and his work, and my prof was a big fan. So good. Yeah, there, you did there's... hear about the paper that you talked about, um, toxic waste and race. Yeah, very very briefly. I don't mm -hmm. think think our prof was attempting to not make this uncomfortable but uh, she briefly touched on it and kind of made it like a supplementary reading yeah it's good that she touched on it i guess but the fact that it's supplementary is indicative that we we have a long way to go don't we oh boy she might have been trying to focus on kind of keeping the class uh, strictly science related and not bring in the um, yeah. aspect but I'm not yeah. entirely sure I agree with that approach, but, you know. There's there's one problem um, that I've found in, in reports like Waste and Race. But then also Vicky Friesen, she talked about reading the book Braiding Sweetgrass. And science has a, a pretty big tendency, and we touch on this a little bit in our um, in our Gay Animals episode, to think that it's above everything when really objectivity at some level is just another form of subjectivity uh which is which is a problem because well well, well I'm, I'm gonna put a pin in that actually we'll, we'll we'll get to some very problematic examples of that but thank you for bringing that's nail on the head on that on that topic <laughs> the way the data was collected for it was the united church of christ commission for racial justice followed the environmental protection agency's guidelines for determining hazardous waste facilities and where they are uh, such as factories, landfills, sewage treatment plants, and concentrated animal feeding operations. And then they would draw a three kilometer radius around the sites. Within these sites, there are about 9.2 million people nationwide in America. Uh, another word for these sites, one you'll hear frequently throughout the episode, is a Superfund site, which is defined as a polluted land that require long-term response to remove hazardous waste contamination such as, this is by no means an all-inclusive list, the sugar industry pollution in Pahokee, Florida, paper mills in Africatown, Alabama, PCBs dumped in waters by Burlington Industries in Chera, South Carolina, and toxic coal ash in Uniontown, Alabama. Now, for the demographics of these 9.2 million people, despite about 40% of the population nationwide in the U.S. being people of color, about 60% of the population in these circles are Black Indigenous people of color, whereas non-toxic areas only have about 30%. Of the 9.2 million people living within these zones, 
5.1 are minorities, composed of 2.5 million Hispanics, 1.8 million African Americans, 616,000 Asians and Pacific Islanders, and 62,000 Indigenous. In 40 out of 44 states, there are statistically significant racial disparities for the people of color as a whole. This is not, this, it's important to note, this isn't, this isn't just economic racism. Um, this isn't them being there just because they're poor. It is because they are a minority that they are there and that the, that the hazardous sites are being put there. To reiterate, race in 1987, 2007, and still today is an independent predictor of where hazardous waste facilities are located. And it is the strongest socioeconomic factor in predicting the location of toxic waste. Which, when I first read that, I ran through a little mental exercise with me and my white boy brain. I was like, okay, I'm just going to imagine a, a U.S. city. And then you just, have you taken like human geography or anything like that? Not since high school. Yeah, no, m- me neither. I, man, I, I hated that class. But there's one memory that I, I looking at the demographic maps, you know, it's like the, there's a hot map. So all the Latina people are over here. All the black people are over here. All the white people are you know, here and here. If you imagine a city that has one hazardous waste site and you look at one of those maps and you see a little little cluster of, of like black people, it's probably right there. The, 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 the landfill was probably put there. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that can be said like, oh, well, they just didn't move. And, but thought processes like that, uh, if you're thinking them at home, so, like, you know, subconsciously or outright, hold on to them, but know that we are, we're going to talk about exactly how wrong <laughs> that, that turns out to be. Returning yeah, to I think that's kind of one of the most uh, important of what you know and to be aware of what you know and be ready yeah. and willing to, to yes. accept that that might not have been accurate. That, that's beautifully put. Returning to New River, North Carolina, let's talk a little bit about what concentrated animal feeding operations are and their impact on communities, which coincidentally is the title of a paper by Carrie Haribar in Massachusetts to the National Association of Local Boards of Health Uh, from which I'm going to quote now, quote, an animal feeding operation or AFO is a lot or facility where animals are kept, confined and fed or maintained over 45 or more days per year and crops, vegetation or forage growth are not sustained over a normal growing period. CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations are classified by the type and number of animals they contain and the way they discharge waste into the water supply. Now, in 1966, it took 1 million farms to house 57 million pigs, which, you know, when you think pastoral farm, that's, you know, that's about the ratio you think, like a pen pigs, sure. Uh, But by 2001, it took only 80,000 farms to house 57 million pigs, which, so we have 8% of the farms that we did in 1966 meeting the same uh, pork requirement that we did in 1966. Wow. So they're, ba- they're, they're practically stacked on top of each other at this point. Any, anyone who's seen Food Inc. would know what I'm talking about, but it is, it is an ugly scene for, for those, those guys. It's important to note that the way in which the food gets onto our table is classified is literally based on which ways they choose to destroy their immediate environment. Like returning to the, to the quote, CAFOs or concentrated animal feeding operations are classified by the type and number of animals they contain and the way they discharge waste into the water supply. Like we know that it's going to happen and it's, it's just, it's just a matter of how that's how we classify our, our agriculture is how we, man, it's, it's just infuriating. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine, imagine a world where we, um, where we classified food based on 
the types of food that the animals were given. Like, oh, I'm going to see a grass-fed pork farm. I don't know if I don't know if uh, pigs really eat grass or if they exclusively eat truffles or what their deal is. But <clears throat> yeah, I think it's mostly grains and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> thank thank you for being here. I, I don't I, man, I don't know if they're like cows or I don't know how that works. So that's that's difficult to to digest. Grasses? That's difficult to, to Oh, uh, sorry. That wasn't a pun. Um I meant <laughs> the information is like difficult. To... Oh. <laughs> I didn't even I didn't even catch them. <laughs> yeah. Difficult to digest. Yeah. Whew. And with any luck, uh we're going to have the audience shitting themselves by the end of this episode. Uh-huh. Yeah, too much, too much, too far. Okay. Uh, included in this in- immediate environment, of course, are the racial minorities that are targeted in the placement of these facilities. Depending on the type of animals and the size of these farms, CAFOs can produce between 2,800 and 1.6 million tons of manure yearly. For scale, that's one and a half times more waste than is produced by the entire city of Philadelphia. So one concentrated animal feeding operation is is producing way more waste than an entire city of humans looking at buying pork. And Cue the I, yikes, I guess. Sorry? Cue the yikes. <laughs> yikes. <laughs> Yoink. Whew. Um, now, it's, it's, it's worth noting, anyone who doesn't know anything about fertilizer or has never seen the movie Aladdin, it's worth noting that manure can be good for farming. Uh, The problem comes when you have 1.6 million tons of it. Uh, Whereas traditional farmers could have shoveled their manure into heaps and distributed over their crops as fertilizer, this much is too much for our veggies to handle. Therefore, modern farming industrialists have to find methods to, in heavy quotes, manage their waste. The most popular of which, you know, actually, before before I say the most popular of which, Roshni, I want you to imagine what the absolute worst thing to do with with 1.6 million tons of pig poop would be. Oof. Um, I imagine we're already doing it. I mean, dumping it. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty close. Yeah. Just spitball. What's the absolute yeah, I'm, worst? I'm picturing mm-hmm. all the way going into an area that's close to to schools. I feel okay. like that would be the very worst. Thing. Okay, well, like, then not... imagine a forest or, like, with water, like, to treat, of water to treat that the, are... To treat, like... Um, and again, in heavy quotes, managing their manure. What what do you imagine they're doing to not just putting it out into the environment, but what do you think they're doing to to you know to process it to to treat it? Yeah. Oof. Um, I imagine they filter out the solid stuff. Sorry oh. for the graphic. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, filter out the solid stuff and then treat the remaining liquid things with very strong cleaning chemicals, which. I imagine won't be much less poisonous than bleach. <laughs> yeah, um, well, some some companies do, but that is actually and surprisingly wildly uh, more environmental than what most are actually doing. The most popular method for managing animal waste is called the anaerobic lagoon. And yes, it's as bad as it sounds. Anaerobic lagoons are literally massive, often leaky puddles of hog shit both metaphorically and literally. Ground and surface water contamination, like I said, these things are hugely leaky. A lot of the time they're just made with like little dirt dikes. So ground and surface water contamination, which is very common around these things, can cause eutrophication, algal blooms, fish infertility, dead plants, increased bacteria and oxygen depletion. 
the insects that breed in the manure spread bacteria and pathogens, including microbes that cause dysentery and diarrhea. And according to a 2000 paper by Omen et al., some other pathogens include anthrax, tetanus, ringworm, salmonella, and cryptosporidosis. And then with, with regards to the 1995 New River hog shit spill in North Carolina, I'm going to quote from a New York Times article that, that was covering it. A dike surrounding an eight-acre receptacle for hog waste at Ocean View Farms in Onslow County collapsed on Wednesday afternoon. Knee-deep, red, soupy waste rushed over roads and tobacco and soybean fields in nearly two tributaries of the New River until the Waste Lagoon, which was 12 feet deep and held waste from more than 10,000 hogs, was virtually empty. According to the demographics provided by statisticalatlas.com, the census-designated area hit first and hit hardest, being the closest to the CAFO, was an area named Half Moon. Half Moon is Jacksonville's blackest community at about 30% African-American population, twice that of the national average. (sighs) Wow. It's always disappointing to, not disappointing, I guess, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's saddening to kind of realize that things are a lot worse than you might think, even at less someone who is somewhat well-read on issues like this. Mm -hmm. I kind of go into situations expecting the worst and it is still always much worse (laughs) than what I expect. Yeah. The, the, our standards for what the worst should be and what the worst is as, as is being practiced in the world are two very different things. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, at the beginning of the episode, the new river hog hog spill incident, it's, it's probably one of the lighter ones that we're going to, we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, in 2005, after a similar, uh, they, they continue, these spills continue, by the way. In 2005, groups such as Environmental Defense and Frontline Farmers drafted a bill which would ban manure lagoons in North Carolina after another spill. In response to multiple such complaints from the community, Charles Carter Jr., an owner of the company that built the lagoon, said, People have been hard on hog farms. People are just trying to make a living and then proceeded to lobby local and state lawmakers to shoot down every bill that would suggest them to do anything remotely responsible regarding their hogs' waste, including the Clean Hogs Farm Act of 2005, which would provide tax incentives to the hog farmers for switching to more environmentally conscious waste management technologies. So they don't want to change. They, they, they're, they're both saying, oh, you're just... You're just getting down on all, on us North Carolina farmers. You're being we're just trying to make a living for ourselves. Meanwhile, there are a multi-billion dollar industry that's pumping hog shit over minority communities. So man. I think we'll find that that's a that's a very common excuse used by uh, rich white powerful mm-hmm. men um, to kind of um, I guess get people to sympathize with their cause by saying, hey, you know what? The economy is important. This is mm-hmm. our hard-earned money. This is our efforts that we're putting in, and this is yeah. the work we're putting into our families, blah, I blah, blah. I thought this was a free country. But we would, yeah, and, like, we would appreciate if the labor was just, you know, if, if their hard work was to feed their families, but it's all, it's... It's a lot more than that. Just that. Surprise, surprise. There's, it's, um, yeah, uh, it's to help kind of perpetuate systems that continually yeah. profit them. I think I, I, I was listening to some podcasts and, um, there, there was one, one, one guest on there that said, that's like the most, the, the classic colonial phrase is, well, what are we supposed to do? 
like, oh, slavery. Well, if I want to have my plantation survive, what am I supposed to do? I have to have slaves. It's not that, you know, my hands are tied. And it's it's the same thing here that we're seeing. In two, yep. I mean, this is 2005. Well, what am I supposed to do? I'm just making a living as a simple hog farm. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. This is so much worse than that. Uh, yeah, let's be clear. The hog industry is a multi-billion dollar one. And how the people on top got to be on top is a tale as old as time, called the race to the bottom. It is the currently accurate idea that whichever industries can cut the most costs, employ the cheapest labor, and implement the skimpiest set of environmental regulations will see the most net profit and Malthusianism their way to the top of the economic food chain verified through cost-benefit analysis. Now, cost-benefit analysis is where we start talking about exactly, oh man, it, it, it just like puts... Race, environmental racism so far into perspective. So, geez. Uh, Cost-benefit analysis is a process that places monetary value on costs and benefits to evaluate issues. Economically, I'm not saying morally, but economically, this kind of makes sense. Uh, rich people have the resources to fight against the placement of toxic factories uh, and such being put near them. So industries will put it by the poor people who can't afford to refuse. And such actions are just seen as the cost of doing business. Environmental sacrifice zones, the, uh, the commonly used term. If you want an omelette, you have to bring some eggs, is the thought process. Now, environmental cost-benefit analysis is different in that it's an attempt to provide policy solutions for intangible products, such as clean air and water, by measuring a customer's willingness to pay for these goods. The statistically blatant fact that minorities are disproportionately affected and targeted by hazardous waste sites is yet another reminder that through cost-benefit analysis, industries are saying that black lives don't matter. Industries will target minority groups because they know that in North America, as it presently is, black lives do not matter. That social pushback will be less and that the communities being targeted will be more complacent as a result of centuries of oppression. The race to the bottom in capitalism and environmental racism will always be inherently racist so long as ethnic minorities go underrepresented and unheard. Wow. I think that makes, like, that's that's not surprising to hear at all. And the thing mm -hmm. is that black people are kind of prevented from, there are systems oh, yeah. in place that prevent them to get to a point where be rich enough to afford to say no. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're never going to get there because, because we, racism, we, I guess. It's, <laughs> this, whole, this whole thing is built on the backs of, of some people being, differently valued. Robert D. Bullard, I hope I hope I remember to include this quote um, from him, but if not, it's because there's just so much. We are we are just touching down on the tip of the iceberg of, of today's topics. Um, Robert D. Bullard has a great quote on that. Forget the exact words. The point is, is that um, so as long as black people are being kept out of, of Congress and in, in decision-making processes. And there are a lot, lot of uh, examples where industries will intentionally keep people of color out of the, the boardroom meetings to, while, while they're making the decisions. This is going to keep happening. As long as there's a difference in value of someone's life based on their skin color, this is, this is continuing, going to continue to be the case. I don't even know if we should blame specifically the industries or the whole system. Because on one hand, yes, it's the industries doing these horrible things, but on the other, it's the system that encourages the industries to do these things. <sighs> I think they work hand in hand to kind of perpetuate yeah. the whole process and make sure that Black people are continued to be disadvantaged so that they may mm -hmm. stay on top, so that, you know, the powerful white people can stay on top. 
yeah, I guess as long as there's money they, in it, they're kind of they're kind of partners in crime in that. I feel like if there was a spectrum, if the, if there was like a map of which um, on on which someone can get angry about race issues, just or I'm I'm gonna be very diligent in going over and checking every every square on that map and every box. Which brings us to the the next topic of what we're gonna be mad about next. This is perhaps one of the areas in which white complacency and compliance in the face of racism is, to me, the most profound. I say compliance and not ignorance because of a few steps taken by the government over the past few years. The EPA was never designed to address environmental policies and practices that result in unfair, unjust, and unequitable outcomes. This initial ignorance could be, and was, construed as a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which states, quote, no person in the United States shall, on the ground of race, color, or national origin, be excluded from participation in, be denied the rights of, or be subjected to discrimination under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance, to which, of course, the EPA applies. Now, the first president to address this uh, environmental injustice was Bill Clinton in 1994, who signed the Environmental Justice Executive Order 12898, uh, which created the Environmental Justice Interagency Working Group a branch of the government slightly differentiated from the EPA and allocated to addressing the disproportionately high and adverse human health or environmental effects of their actions on minority and low-income population. And this sounds good, but bum ba bum is in fact a red herring, uh, a moral license to continue in wrongdoing. After clicking around for 45 minutes on their tab on epa.gov, I got the profound impression that all the environmental justice interagency working group was there to do was exist and sound pretty and divert attention from the fact that they did not do anything and never really have. And I mean, that's, it's, it's good to have my own opinion, but if my own opinion isn't enough, as I can understand it might not be, I'll quote directly from their page to get my point across. Once I finally found the tab that cataloged everything that they have done, I found this text describing their most recent environmental justice endeavor. I accessed this page in 2020. Quote, In 2011, IWG agencies took a landmark step to support environmental justice by adopting a charter and signing the Memorandum of Understanding on Environmental Justice in Executive Order 12898, or MOU. The MOU served as a formal agreement among federal agencies to recommit to addressing environmental justice through a more collaborative, comprehensive, and efficient process. Looking at the MOU itself, the purposes are equally vague. Quoting from the document now, its purposes are to A, declare the continued importance of identifying and addressing environmental justice considerations in agency programs, policies, and activities as provided in Executive Order 12898, including as to agencies not already covered in the order. B, to renew the process under Executive Order 12898 for agencies to provide environmental justice strategies and implementation progress reports. C, to establish structures and procedures to ensure that interagency working groups operate effectively and efficiently. And then finally, D, to identify particular areas of focus to be included in agency environmental justice efforts. A a quick exercise in Rhetoric 101. Is there anything concrete there? Nope. (laughs) Nope. Not that I I could. I sounded like a bunch of for them. It's it's a lot of mumbo jumbo. Um, And it gets, you realize, I'm I'm just going to keep reading because this, this is some seriously insidious shit. It gets much more bleak at the bottom of the report under miscellaneous. Section B, C, and D. Quoting from these now. B, applicable law. 
nothing in this MOU shall be construed to impair or otherwise affect authority granted by law to or responsibility imposed by law upon an agency or head thereof or the status of that agency within the federal government. C. Fiscal. This MOU is not a fiscal or financial obligation. It does not obligate a federal agency to expend, exchange, or reimburse funds, services, or supplies, or to transfer or receive anything of financial value. And then D, internal management. This MOU and activities under it relate only to internal procedures and the management of federal agencies and the IWG. They do not create any right or benefit, substantive or procedural, enforceable at law or in equity by any party against the United States, its agencies or other entities, its officers, employees, or agents, or any other person. To summarize, the Environmental Justice Interagency Working Group's most highly touted achievement in the last decade has all the legal power of a pinky promise. And this, I would argue, was done knowingly. The document is buried under level upon level of links, and the most important part of the document, which essentially nullifies the whole thing, has been shunted to the bottom where civilian readers are least likely to read under the title miscellaneous. By my mind, this has transgressed the border of ignorance to an intentional turning of a blind eye. It is easy to say that good is being done because committees are being made and documents are being signed, but without concrete action or legal enforcement, it is all a smokescreen thrown over the systemic and insidious application of environmental racism. It is a thoughts and prayers attitude taken to the exact same profoundly racist practices that America was founded on. Racists never went away, they just got smarter. Between 2000 and 2001, more than yep, 100... See, I feel like it's more... Sorry? I was just saying that it's, uh, it's more a ploy to kind of subdue the masses so that, yeah. you know, if anybody points finger they're like what do you mean we've done all of it we did but we really, made an environmental justice interagency working group how can you say that we're we're being racist when we made this committee of the government that does nothing yeah. <laughs> and they will they will they will tell us that money talks and mm -hmm. all of that but when it's related all they're giving us is like you said a pinky promise yeah they are not diverting funds and allocating funds where they should be, and where it can do a lot. So imagine, just, just, just imagine being so unwilling to change that rather than saying, "Hey, EPA, we're going to implement these rules so that you have to like make sure that by 2020, um, black people aren't being like choked out by by uh, polychlorinated biphenyls," you know, just just as a goal. And instead, we're gonna we're gonna say no. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna create an entire interagency working group between the federal offices of the United States designed to make it look like we're doing that without actually doing that. Like, that's fucking evil. That's that's dirty. Oh, excuse it me. really is. And it's not like people make excuses saying, oh, well, those things cost money. You know, like, where are they supposed to find the funds and the labor mm -hmm. and all that stuff to make this happen? It, it is not that hard to make it happen. Mm -hmm. All you need is political will. Like, yeah. it is... It's not, it's not like the money isn't there. It's not that it can't be fundraised. People want jobs all the time. The labor can be collected. It's mm -hmm. just that it's an unwillingness to change. And that unwillingness isn't, it doesn't have anything to profit or economic gain. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just wanting to be, well, that, like you said, I, I can't say it any better. It's just it's, pure evil. It's, it is. And uh, like a good question to ask there, I think, is okay. So, so let's assume that 
you know, in, in all these countless, countless scenarios. What if they, what, just, just theoretically, what if these people suffering were white? There would be, like, riots in, in, the, in the streets. The Karens would come en masse to storm the White House if this, if this thing was happening to white people in the same, at the same degree that it's happening to, to black indigenous people of color. Oh, oh, for sure. It's like, um, you know, the, this, I mean, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but it's like the mm-hmm. difference between, you know, the Central Park Five. It was a white woman yeah. who was, who was, who was raped and murdered. It was mm-hmm. a huge case. The media went mm-hmm. crazy. The country went crazy. But, you know, there are like hundreds of black, indigenous, and other people, women of color, that are being assaulted on a daily basis. And it's not mm-hmm. like they're out here making the news. Yeah. It's. They're not making headlines because their lives simply matter less. Yeah. They, in the eyes of North American society, they just don't matter. And like. I mean, I think, I think for me, the most, the epitome of this, and there are many, is the Breonna Taylor case. Like, can you, just, just, can you, I can't, I can't even imagine the outrage that the nation would feel if some black men went into the house of a white woman and then shot her in her, in her, in her bed. Like, a race war would be declared. And, and, and then the same thing is happening. It's just, it's, oh man, a statistic. Oh, that race war would definitely be declared. And the worst part is that when the people started marching in the streets with mm. all of their AK-47s and AR-15s, the government wouldn't say anything because it yep. would be, because they would be protected under their freedom to protest and freedom of... Yeah, as anyone who, who talks to me regularly would know, I have a massive philosophical lady crush on uh, the existentialist philosopher Simone de Beauvoir. I was reading one of her, her essays called Ethics of Ambiguity. Uh, right about when the George Floyd protests started, and there was such a there was such a perfect quote that she she mentioned. Um, this was written in the fifties, and she was talking about why America thinks it's okay, uh, what, or how America continues to justify the lynching and oppression of, and, and I mean many other facets too, of of racialized of of racial minorities. She says that that the idea of the land of the free is that you can do whatever you want. So when one, one, when a bunch of angry white dudes get into a mob and lynch some, some, some black guy, you know, the, the government will be like, Oh, well, it's a free country. Like it's bad that they did this. Sure. But it's free. So they can do whatever, you know, like, what are we going to do? Free country. But her response to that was that, that that's inherently ironic. The idea of having a free country while mobs run around, oppressing people for the the color of their skin and preventing them from being free it makes you know you take a step back away from it it makes zero sense Uh, and i mean of course i'm not saying that lynching a black person ever could but in in the words of simone de beauvoir the freedom to deny a freedom is a freedom to be denied you can't have freedom while events like that are going out and happening and I mean, that's, uh, I say the 1950s, but... They, um, they, they always say, like, the, the popular uh-huh. quote that I've seen is, America isn't free for anybody but white people. Yep. Yep. So it's just, uh, it's, it's a selective freedom. Yeah. <laughs> Returning back to the original uh, point of, of this podcast, a quick statistic to give people an idea of exactly how bad it is when I say that the EPA is... is like just intentionally being ignorant and nothing is being done to enforce them. Between 2000 and 2001, which for reference is seven years after the uh, Environmental Justice Interagency Working Group was founded, more than 100 complaints of environmental injustice were officially filed with the EPA and zero of them 
ruled in favor of the complainant, amounting to a conscious policy of non-enforcement. So it's, it's, yeah, it it just makes your brain melt. Like they don't, they don't care. And unless people, you know, stand up and start yelling at them and like calling them out on their, their bullshit, they're not going to have to because it's the, it's the path of least resistance. I think the most important part of understanding the profound impact of environmental racism is establishing a very human baseline for the atrocities being committed. Uh, In the words of Stalin, (laughs) one death is a tragedy, while a million is a statistic. While his interpretation of this was that it was okay to starve the Siberians and sign thousands of death warrants, ours will be to do our best to not forget the individual suffering of hundreds in the past and in the present while going forward with our lives. Now, Roshni, have you heard of Cancer Alley. I have not. You have not. Oh boy. Oh boy. Uh, on a on a scale of 1 to 10, how how livid, how seethingly angry are you right now about racial injustice? I would say bordering a 7. Oh, a seven. okay. Well, we're we're going to we're going to start pumping those numbers with Cancer Alley. <clears throat> cancer Alley is an 85-mile area in Louisiana known for its exacerbated cancer rates holding the second highest rates of cancer in the U.S. Quoting from a ProPublica article, quote, out of every 10 houses, there's a prospect of one or two people that have died of cancer in them. The statistic was in reference to St. Gabriel, a predominantly black community in Cancer Alley. Now, why is this region named Cancer Alley? As one might expect, it is because since the 1950s, dozens of chemical processing plants have set up shop along the river. In an interview with some of the residents, they talked about how the old custom of sitting outside on summer evenings in the 40s fell out of favor long ago thanks to chemical releases, sometimes so thick that they'd fall as a golden mist. According to one resident, quote, it'd look like raindrops, but yellow. We'd have to hose our yards clean. Today in St. Gabriel, it is a common sight to see birds dropping dead or dying on someone's lawn. Quoting Craig Colton, a professor of geography and anthropology at a Louisiana State University, quote, given prevailing racial attitudes in the 1950s, majority black communities were, in effect, invisible. This unleashed the full force of industrial opportunism on the communities, setting up sites wherever and whenever they could. Today, along this 85-mile stretch of land, there are more than 150 plants and refineries. That's, that's like, you're walking, that would be like if I were to walk to Metro in Kingston, I would pass two. That's ridiculous. Wow. Like, like I, I just want everyone at home listening to imagine, what, what does one mile mean to you? Where from, from your front porch can you walk that'll, that'll you know, cross, you know, one mile? That, in, in that area, you're going to pass two. Two chemical processing plants. Holy shit. Often when dealing... They they, they and they saw the effects and they Uh decided to make more. Yeah. In the same place. Yeah, there there are people saying, hey, stop, our birds are dying on our front porch. And they're like, huh, what? I can't hear you over all this this construction. Like... Wow. Yeah. Often when dealing with environmental racism, the ruling class will plead that it's just trying to X. Uh, This can take the form of just trying to help, 
just trying to make a life for myself and a couple others. Remember uh, the case of Ocean View hog farms in North Carolina. They complained that people were being too hard on these poor hog farmers, dumping shit all over their marginalized communities, despite being a multi-billion dollar industry. If you're familiar with Futurama, it's kind of like Mom Corp from that. Have you seen that? I have not. Okay. Well, it's it's a fun show. Uh, it's a Matt, Matt Groening show. Um, yeah. And anyway, in that one of the one of the consistent bat evil characters is like there's this old mom who's like she she runs Mom Corp. And she gets away with all these moral injustices because she's like, oh, I'm just a, I'm just an old lady and I'm just trying to find a couple cents to reintroduce slavery in the mod. It's just, yeah. Um, it's, it's surprisingly similar to that. In the case of St. Gabriel, one such plant was established with the promise of bringing new jobs and the opportunity for wealth. This was, if you can guess where I'm going with this, uh, not the case. A 1995 employment survey conducted by the city of St. Gabriel just after one chemical processing plant in St. Gabriel opened showed that less than 9% of the full-time industry jobs in St. Gabriel were held by local residents. The St. Gabriel mayor, Lionel Johnson, believes that there's a reason the companies don't want to hire their citizens, because if they did, the residents would start to realize the extent of the factory's pollution and take a stance against it. Uh, quoting from him now, quote, if they live locally, the workers would be much more cautious and aware of what's happening at the facilities. They'd know that it has a direct impact on themselves and their families, and therefore the industries do not want to employ them. So the industry, they're coming in like, oh yeah, you guys are poor, we'll help you out, we'll give you a couple jobs, sure. But instead, it's, they're, they're bringing in their own, their own people, and it gets back to the race to the bottom. I, I don't have any evidence supporting this, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was immigrants who can't afford to say no to a job because they, it obviously puts them in huge, huge health health risks and they'd be much cheaper and it's race to the bottom. They have no intent of helping these communities in which they're setting up shop. They, they will say whatever they can and have to, to get what they want in the end. It's, yeah. Capitalism. Love that. Yeah. I think that this was uh, made into a movie, you know, like a movie about Cantor mm -hmm. Alley, just, just filming all of the plants and the, the dying birds and mm -hmm. people have to close off their lawns. People would think it's a post-apocalyptic film. Yeah. Yeah. Like, people would be like, oh, huh, this is a weird take on Mad Max. <laughs> no, it's Louisiana. <laughs> Jesus. Oh, man. Yeah, so for me, one particularly difficult aspect of environmental racism is that it's so much less visible than a police officer kneeling on an innocent black man's neck or a SWAT team shooting an EMT in her bed. It is so easy for skeptics to sit back and say, well, that's not happening anymore, or show me the proof, or it's their own fault. Um, it is their own fault. The proof is there if you're willing to look, and yes, it's still happening. While the statistics are quoted from, are from 1995, Cancer Alley is still very much a thing, and activism has grown and evolved. Activism in Cancer Alley started in the 1980s, when a St. Gabriel pharmacist began keeping tally and found that one in three local pregnancies ended in miscarriage. Uh, according to the EPA data, the chloroprene uh, levels emitted from... This, this is just like a specific example of one of the many, like, 150 sites in, in Cancer Alley. According to the EPA data, chloroprene levels emitted from the Denka neoprene plant in the St. John Parish. The estimated concentrations of cancer-causing chemicals are among the highest in the country. State and corporate officials alike downplay the risks. 
a representative of the creatively named Chemical Association, a guy fittingly named Bowser, says a 2018 EPA report has, quote, dramatically overstated the danger posed by ethylene oxide in the river corridor, and Denka officials have consistently challenged what constitutes the acceptable threshold of chloroprene set by the EPA, a standard that, to this day, is not punishable by law. So these guys are saying, one, you're being dramatic. Two, let us pump more chemicals into the air, please, EPA, please. And three, EPA can't do anything regardless. It's not, the, the law that, that monitors chloroprene levels is not punishable by law. They can't arrest anyone for killing, you know, for, for causing one in three local pregnancies to end in miscarriage. Like they, they because- if that isn't gaslighting at its finest, I don't yep. know what is. Oh my God. And it's like, it's one thing, uh, like I said, with, with police violence, it's one thing because you can, you can take a video of something happening and say, holy shit, that's so wrong. You can read uh, Elijah McClain's last words. Like for me, I'd, I'd, I'd like to think that I identify with some of what Elijah McClain tried to be in that, like when, when I, when I, when I, when I'm in a particularly good mood, yeah, I'll, I'll dance to Beatles and buy a, buy a chocolate bar for five bucks. <laughs> like that's, that's, and, and then this kid who's never done anything in his life, who plays violin for kittens is, is injected with ketamine and choked to death. Like there's no, no one can look at that and say, oh, well, the cops are just doing their jobs. No, there's no excuse for that. Whereas with environmental racism, they can just, they can, they can, like you said, they can just gaslight. They can say, oh, it's not that bad. You, you know, your babies aren't dying. Not really. Cause whatever, who cares? I think the most shocking part of it is their, uh, their complete just dismissal of actual mm. statistics. Here's what you're doing and here's how it's affecting us and we need you to stop for these reasons. It could be as clearly stated out as, I don't know, and they would still just <laughs> dismiss being it. being stated pretty say, clearly. Well, we're going to our own scientists look into this and we're going to proof check, we're going to fact check your facts. Mm -hmm. like, Even though we know that they're fact. You know, it kind of reminds... Uh, something that I think these these kind of companies would say would be oh just just stop testing. Imagine electing someone. I, I okay. Um, I think one of the things that we discussed in my environmental um, toxicology class was uh -huh. that you know now we are able to detect all of these toxins in bodies of water or mm -hmm. in the air because we have the tools to do so. Like back mm -hmm. in the day, we didn't have all the tools. Like we couldn't measure. Um, incredibly small amounts mm -hmm. in air or in water but now we can so i've also heard people like i've heard the argument that these chemicals have been in our bodies of water or in the air forever and you're just worried now because we're able to measure them mm -hmm. when we didn't know that they were there we were totally fine with it and nothing was happening and like now that you know it's there oh now you're making a big deal um, about and it and saying that this is but that's not it the reason like we are measuring the levels that we are measuring now 
yes, we have more advanced technology to measure like really small amounts, but the science is still there. The facts are there that the, mm -hmm. the levels are higher than they should be for human safety and for aquatic safety, but that's mm -hmm. a whole other issue. Yeah. It, it's proven that the levels are higher than they should be for, for public. And I don't understand how they have the information and they still make these excuses. Like, do you think that they listen to themselves and think, huh, this sounds stupid. I probably shouldn't say it. Or do they just like their PR teams are like, yeah, sounds great. You can put this out in a press state, like in a press release. I just cut straight oh. to the chase and very much doubt that they have souls. Perhaps <laughs> the most iconic grassroots opposition to this is the Louisiana Bucket Brigade, a health and justice organization that works with the communities near the state's oil refineries and chemical plants. In one interview, Ann Rolf, the founder of Louisiana Bucket Brigade, is quoted in telling reporters that St. James officials, quote, basically changed the black district into the petrochemical district. I want to reiterate that this fight is ongoing. According to an article from June 29, 2020, Ann Rolf and one other member of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade are facing up to 15 years in prison for terrorizing the home of an oil and gas lobbyist in December. Now, I want to engage both you, Roshni, and uh, the listeners at home to take a moment and imagine what the act of terrorism was. Don't You don't have to say it. We're just going to take like a solid 10 seconds and just imagine. What did Ann Rolfe of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade uh, for Health and Justice do that qualifies as a terrorist act, an act of terrorism? All right. Now, Roshni, what... What came to mind? What what conceivably could could this um, health and justice organization have done uh, that qualified as as terrorism? Um, it's a I, tricky question because it's, it's definitely not terrorism. It's the that's 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 the hint. That's what I was thinking. I was like, this doesn't like it wouldn't even if I like thought of a thing like it wouldn't classify as yeah. an act of terrorism. Oh boy, this quote he heavy quotes terrorism. Terrorism was in the form of them leaving a shoebox of plastic pollution taken off of Texas beaches and left one on the front doorstep of an oil and gas lobbyist. For reference, Formosa, the, the um, company, company that they were boycotting, um, had in 2019 had been found guilty of a $50 million violation of the EPA's guidelines in Texas. So they didn't want them in Cancer Alley. Yeah, so they left, they left the box along with a note that said, in its entirety... These are just some of the billions of beads that Formosa Plastics dumped into the coastal waters in the state of Texas. The official complaint was that the note was, Not quote, meant to cause fear. This action was taken in response to the Formosa Plastics pushing to open a $9.1 billion plant in the predominantly black St. James Parish. This would be the nation's largest plastic factory. Pushing those numbers, getting up to in terms of how angry... <laughs> oh, eight point. Yeah, sorry. My uh, my internet connection's um a little little bit wavery. If that's not abundantly clear, so I'm, there there might be times where I have to make you repeat yourself. But yes, eight point five. So that's fun to live in the land of the free, where protesting and leaving little boxes of plastic beads on someone's doorstep is terrorism. Fifteen years in prison for that. Can you? I I, I hope to God if there. I hope I hope God can prove that there is some form of higher justice in the world 
by making sure that she does not get those years. I'd like to now quote from Gregory Manning, the African-American pastor of the St. James Parish in question, as well as a member of the Louisiana Bucket Brigade in a 2020 interview, which was had about 10 days prior to us recording it here. We not only call it Cancer Alley as it has been called historically, but we have given a new name, and that's Death Alley because not only does it have the highest rates of cancer than anywhere else in the nation, it has the highest rates of all sorts of diseases, such as autoimmune diseases, asthma, and respiratory diseases. And so these are people who I want to say are the African descendants of slaves. And so we are standing with them to say that these folks are being poisoned. They are literally saying we cannot breathe. They're crying out for people to notice that these petrochemical industries have moved into this land, over a hundred of these, which have consistently terrorized them and poisoned them on a daily basis. I'm talking men and women and children, and so I believe, as a clergy, as a pastor, that I cannot sit idly by and watch these people be poisoned and killed ruthlessly by petrochemical industries and oil and gas industries. So I, I, I cannot, sorry, go ahead. It's just the different types of weapons that white supremacy utilizes mm-hmm. to kind of silence and I guess just straight up kill is the right word to, to yep. kill, kill. people. <laughs> you know, it's not just a straight up, they won't pick one or the other, you know, like it won't be like, mm-hmm. we're going to do this silently so that no one can catch us. They will do it blatantly that like in front of the world mm-hmm. for the world to see. And they will also do it silently. They're, it's like a multi-pronged approach to make sure that they can't grow and they can't yeah it's not even a bad hole they can't even live regular lives and there just keeps being more and more prongs like man and we aren't we aren't even touching on the the global waste trade or the 1600s when the when the um east india british trading company uh literally burned down entire islands in in indonesia who didn't want to give them their spices like we, we're, not ta- we're not talking about any of that, purely because I think if we were to talk about the entire history of racism, and specifically environmental racism, Roshni, I think, man, we'd have to have much nicer chairs. <laughs> I definitely need someone to bring me food uh, every eight hours or so. I probably need a bedpan. Like, yeah. Yeah. Canada. Let's talk about Canada. And, you know, this is, this is where I, I identify as being from. I, I don't really know, know your story there, but um, Canada. The country above it all. Um, I was just going to say, I'm from India, but I've been in Canada for 10 years. So at this point, I'm also, like, I would say I'm a Canadian Mm. as well. Okay. Yeah. Well, Roshni, aren't you glad that you're in a country that doesn't do environmental racism? Aren't you glad? Let me, let me get my, my, my mouth as close to my mic as possible. Aren't you glad that you, that you're safe from environmental racism in Canada, that that doesn't happen here, that we're not the States? Aren't you glad? Say you're glad, Am I? <laughs> No, you're not. You shouldn't be because you're not um, safe. Canada, uh, it, it, environmental racism in t- Canada takes a slightly different form, but not always. And we're going to start with perhaps the best known case of this in Canada uh, was, was Africville in Nova Scotia. Have you heard of Africville? No. Okay. And I'm, I might be saying this wrong. Maybe it's like Africville, but I'm, I, I, I want to tell you the story. I'd like everyone to sit down, cuddle up next to the fireplace, and let me tell you about Africville, one of the worst examples of hate crimes in Canada. (coughs) Africville was founded by black Nova Scotians from a variety of origins, ex-slaves from the 13 colonies, 
black loyalists from the War of 1812. It wasn't a bad place. Early visitors noticed that while some of the houses were somewhat ramshackle, many expressed a uniquely African vibrance of color and sensual eccentricity with blight yellow, blue, and red houses being erected alongside their less fortunate neighbors. In the words of one of the residents to understand Africville, quote, you got to know the church. Established in 1849, the Seaview African United Baptist Church was the community's social life, which was the place of baptisms, weddings, and funerals. Other black groups from other black towns would come to Africville for Sunday picnics and church events. In 1901 and 1902, the Africville Seasides hockey team of the Colored Hockey League won the championship game. Africville was claimed as, quote, one of the first free black communities outside of Africa. It was one of five in Halifax. Sounds like a fun place, right? Right? Uh, Now, Roshni, can you imagine what happened when white people saw a place where black people could be happy and thrive? I I think you can because our history is is steeped in examples. So you you cut out a little bit. I'm I'm trying really hard. (laughs) I'm trying really hard to not be a person talking over people. Sorry. Oh, my God. uh, The white people would be unsettled and... Uh They would be upset, I think, because mm-hmm. how could they possibly be happy? I think that it just bothers them to see black people as, you know, human beings that are capable of success because mm-hmm. that goes against, at least back then, that they're inferior to humans in general. Like they were considered subhuman. Yeah. And to see them thrive, to see them happy, to see them grow and be successful just uh-huh. goes against that idea. How are they the same as us? How is that yeah. possible? That can't be possible. Because they don't look the same. They don't look the same. So how could how could they have remotely similar insides? That doesn't make sense. I'm doing a southern southern accent, but uh, this is a very Canadian story. Throughout history, Africville was confronted with isolation. The town never received proper roads, health services, water, street lamps, or electricity. The public forced the residents to fund their own school, and none of the teachers had any formal training until the 1930s. From the mid-19th century, the city of Halifax located its least desirable facilities in the Africville area, where people had little political power and property values were low. A prison was built in 1853, an infectious disease hospital in 1870, followed by a slaughterhouse and a fecal waste depository from the nearby white community named Russellville. It is worth noting that all through the 1850s, the residents of Africville had been protesting the city of Halifax to provide them with municipal water and sewage treatment. Despite paying the same taxes as the rest of the city, Africville residents never received plumbing. As time wore on, the town threw more and more at Africville residents. In 1958, the city decided to move the town garbage dump to Africville, which contributed to the city's decision to categorize it as a slum in the 1960s. Due to the city's continued negative response to the people of Africville, who still had no plumbing, the community failed to develop, and this failure was used as rationale for its destruction. As only 14 residents held land titles deemed acceptable by the city, and it's important to note deemed acceptable because it's very possible that many of these land permits were entirely legitimate but written on paper 150 years old, the majority of Africville citizens had no legal rights and were given a $500 payment and public housing and told to move out. Some of the younger families believed this to be sufficient, but many of the elderly would not budge. Resistance to eviction became more difficult as the residents gradually accepted buyouts and their homes were demolished, sometimes as soon as the residents were outside of the house. 
There were records of occasions where the city would demolish a house whenever the opportunity existed, such as when the resident had to spend a night at the hospital. Wow. What, what was that word like that we used? Plot. It sounds like, a, like in a movie when a villain mm-hmm. sits down and he plans out exactly how he's going to disadvantage his opponent and then yeah. come in at its most vulnerable point. And this isn't this isn't like an Austin Powers. Oh, we're going to build a laser to pump a hole in the atmosphere. No, they're like, okay, we're gonna. We're, this is this is a fucking chess game to them. Um, yeah. First, you put the slaughterhouse there in the prison uh, and and the the hospital, and then you start uh, dumping shit on them, dump, dumping white people shit on the black people. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, and then in 1958, let's on on top of the shit, let's just start putting our garbage there. Um, and then you know, since it's covered in garbage anyway. Who cares? Uh, it's a slum. You can knock it down. <sighs> Jesus. From 1964 to 1967, the residents were assisted in their move by Halifax by transporting the residents, their children, and their belongings in the city's garbage trucks. And on November 20th, 1967, a year before the city officially possessed the building, the Africville church was quietly demolished at night to avoid controversy. The documentation, which shows the church was sold in 1968, was realized to have been edited by hand to forge the sale as a year earlier. At the time it was bulldozed, it was still in use, and it contained many vital records of the residents, such as birth, marriage, and death records inside. It is possible that the city of Halifax wanted these documents lost or destroyed, as they would have been used to legitimize the citizen of Africville's land claims. The Africville residents were degraded before, during, and after their forced resettlement. Hey, Canada. How you doing, Canada? Oh, that's cool. You're you're not racist, are you? Oh, good. Good. Because this this wouldn't happen. This wouldn't happen in Canada. Just just treating just treating black people like uh, as as if they're equivalent to trash and moving them in garbage trucks. No big deal. Not racist at all. You guys don't need cars, right? You're black. So you you understand being garbage, right? That's how it works. Yeah. So we're just going to throw you in this in this garbage truck. Yeah. Now this story will be. I don't understand how they, they will tr- they treat um, black community black people as uh-huh. if they're nothing and then be surprised when they're angry. Yeah, like it's this whole angry black woman stereotype. I mean, they're angry for a reason. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, like. Maybe it has something to do with how we've been saying that they're literally subhuman for like the last few thousand years. Maybe, you know, like. I saw a protest, um, a poster um, that a white woman was holding at one of the BLM um, marches. And uh-huh. she said, uh, if my, if the, if the police um, killed my innocent child, I would want to set the entire town on fire. So it, it was, it was, I'm paraphrasing here, but she yeah, was yeah. attempting to kind of, you know, like as a mother, as, at the frequency that black kids are being killed. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine that, that horde of Karens that you were talking about earlier? Yeah. They would oh storm the White House. And like an, oh. another thing too, I remember this is a little bit more of an anecdotal story. Um, I was having a conversation uh, with my wonderful grandmother, bless her heart. And she was, she was talking about how, I think Oklahoma or something, there was a, there was a Black Lives Matter protest, a bunch of like online forums and stuff surfaced in white supremacy groups saying like, oh yeah, this is the time we got to, we got to come. 
We bring our guns. We make sure the, these stupid N-words don't start any of those riots here. Uh, and so they went and they patrolled around the city in trucks with, with like AK-47s and stuff in the back. Like, of course, none of them were arrested. And then at the end of the day, they, they had a great celebration because they, they had confiscated a crowbar. One crowbar. One crowbar. Does, does, I, I, I just want everyone to like do their best to, to take a step back away from yourself and look at what you're doing. Like, would, would those people realize, do you think, if they could, if, I don't know. I don't know. I, oh man, it's, it's, it's sad, but not hopeless. We must continue the fight. Black Lives Matter. Are you ready? Yes. To continue this story, uh, while being irredeemable, of course, has a very minutely upturned ending. In 2010, the Halifax Council ratified a proposed Africville apology under an arrangement with the federal government to compensate descendants, design a museum, and build a replica of the community church. It is worth noting that this ratification never would have happened if it were not brought to the attention of the public, and that there are many other communities who suffered very similar fates whose stories we may simply never know. And there is actually an entire, an entire movement more or less attributed to this in Canada called the Urban Renewal Trend, um, which took many forms. I'll, I'll take that disclaimer right now. It, there, there were, you know, a lot of it was replacing the roads and bringing electricity to Saskatchewan and stuff. But there was a very real portion of it, which was a pseudo-ethnic cleansing movement disguised as modernization. Following the Allied victory in World War II, there was energy to redevelop areas classified as slums. And if you'll remember, uh, Africville was designated as a slum after the, the city started dumping garbage on it to classify it as a slum uh, and then relocate the people to new and improved housing. The progressive gilding of these actions are profound. I have had no luck finding any mention of the fate of the other four African Canadian communities around Halifax. So if they are there, uh, their story isn't being told. If they aren't, their story still isn't being told. Africville is just the one that happens to have caught the public eye. Are, are you being disconnected or are you just sad? I was just speechless for a second. Um, yeah. I think it's silence. That, like that, that's what they want, you know? Like if, if mm-hmm. the story... So if they suffer in silence, obviously nothing's going to be done because yeah. nobody's demanding it. And of course, if the residents themselves are demanding it, it doesn't count because their voices, you know, yeah. don't matter. If it isn't silent, does catch the public eye, all they get is an apology yep it, it, it's sorry supposed to uh, generational trauma i <laughs> there are what, what is a museum, i'm sorry like what is a museum supposed to do it, um it, like yeah so that's a good question <laughs> yeah it's so performative like the 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 thought is nice i guess but like mm-hmm. you said earlier it it's a thoughts and prayers mentality it's it's performative honestly i hope that our generation can see through um, that performative, their performativeness. Um, I hope that we can see through that because yeah. that's, it, it's like the fact that you were reading earlier. It's just, uh, it's just words and there's no real action and they, they're being done to, to make up for the loss that those communities have suffered. Mm-hmm. And a museum sure as hell does not make up for any at all. There it, were some, it's um, like a oh, nice to see a remnant of our old community, you know, like it, it's heartwarming. But I mean, the milk was already spilled. Like, what? What do you? What is a sorry gonna do now? Yeah, I think one of the one of the most profound ways that someone can connect this story 
was if you just look up pictures of of africville from the 1800s that it, it was a uh, like, I mean, it, it wasn't particularly developed, and that's, again, entirely do, to do with the fact that the city of Halifax at the time, and possibly today, just had no interest in developing it for them. But their buildings, it was so clear that the community was devoted to expressing its love. Like, when I, when I was talking about the bright blue, bright yellow, bright red houses, every single house was was painted in one of those just vibrant, welcoming colors. And it was somehow, people looked at that and said, nah, these people don't, these people don't matter. We're just gonna, we're just gonna fuck with them for 150 years. And then maybe afterward, after, after people notice, we'll uh, prop back up the church we knocked down and it'll be all right. People, people will forgive and forget. Sure. Or mean God going to forgive them. Hopefully not. Fingers, pinkies, toes crossed. Thoughts and prayers going out against the racists. God, please smite these fuckers. <laughs> It is largely a result of, of this, this urban, urban renewal trend that environmental justice is so much more prevalent in the States than it is in Canada, at least in the forms discussed so far. Quoting from a paper by Randolph Haluza DeLay of King's University College in Edmonton, quote, in Canada, there is no discernible environmental justice movement and environmental justice research is limited. Numerous differences with the United States mean that American environmental justice research may not be useful in the Canadian context. What this essentially means is that because of the dispersal of ethnic communities, even Canada's blacker areas are more mixed than those in America. Canada does not show such large-scale patterns of racial segregation. But don't forget, this is because we did not let them be their own people. In this scenario, what Canada has done is arguably worse. But it does mean that environmental injustices between white and black people are committed at lower degrees than in America, at least by my findings. A paper by Bazelli et al. from 2003 concludes in saying that the faces of environmental racism in Canada seem more varied and nuanced than the USA. So we've touched on a lot of environmental racism as it appears in its blatant uh, American forms, and we're going to talk about some of the more traditionally Canadian uh, insidious, like slow-acting forms that, that we've 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 got going on up in the Great White North. You ready? You need a Need a water break? Take a breather? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. I have heard it said that the indigenous peoples are the blacks of Canada. If that is to say that they experience racism, then pretty much everyone but the whites are the blacks of Canada. But it is true that the indigenous story of environmental racism is most likely the predominant one in Canada. Again, as I have found it. The Canadian dynamic is less so much uh, direct environmental racism so much as environmental racialization. That is to say, while things we do badly to the environment are not as localized in racially uneven areas, the things we do badly for the environment disproportionately affect some groups more than others. For example, salmon fisheries off the West Coast have introduced antibiotic-resistant parasites, as well as chemical and fecal exposure, to Wild West Coast salmon populations, which are quintessential to both the economy and the culture of West Coast Aboriginal communities. Coastal First Nations face disproportionate health risks from salmon farms, are marginalized in decision-making processes with respect to the farms and consider their worldviews, identities, and ways of life are both ignored and at risk from the farms. This is an example of recognitional justice, since the legitimacy processes by which social standing is recognized and symbolic meaning is attributed to these questions follows a Western set of values. That is to say, we, as a Western colonial society, will hear a matriarch from the coast Salish uh, which is an indigenous community, saying, stop poisoning our fish, they are a gift from Mother Earth, and feel justified in saying, no, 
due to the classically colonial catchphrase, you weren't really using them anyway. Does, does that make sense, what I'm trying to say there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think I think that's that's pretty much how we're all feeling right about now, Roshni. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a, it's a feeling of anger, but mm-hmm. also, well, this feels bad to say, but defeat, mm-hmm. because it's, mm-hmm. there's, there's so much. There is so much. It's heartbreaking, to say the least. Hopelessness is uh, a feeling that I have come across quite a lot when researching environmental injustices or uh, the history of policing in America or just about anything with a racial lens on it. And I, I think the only real solace I can find is that so long as you're doing the best that you can to make sure that that doesn't happen, then you like, that's, that's the only kind of peace that we're going to be able to find is knowing that you're doing, we're, we're doing what we can. Uh, which is why I think this is a really important podcast to put out there. I think the first that I heard of environmental racism, the example that was used was Grassy Narrows. I'm not sure if that was if that's part of your. Mm-hmm. I, I I haven't heard anything about Grassy Narrows. Oh. Oh. Um. So Grassy Narrows was a an indigenous community. I think this was this was a while ago, but uh-huh. um, it was one of the one of the incidents that that resulted in a long lasting um effects because what happened was the the paper mill it was one of the paper mill plants and they dumped toxic levels of mercury into the into the body of water that was next to the community and the primary source of food for that community for that indigenous community was was fish they Mm -hmm. went fishing so what ended up happening is they they ate those fish the fish that had mercury inside them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they displayed um, symptoms of mercury poisoning. And mm-hmm. mercury poisoning is, uh, is passed down. It's, a, it's the effects of that is our, um, it's generational. Yeah. yeah. It's generational. So there are children and adults to this day, even though this happened, I believe in the sixties, but mm-hmm. don't, don't hold it to that. There are children today who, are still suffering from mercury poisoning. And mm-hmm. it's, I think CBC released an article. It was called Children of the Poison River, I believe. It's quite well known um, just because there are so many people, like like I said, generations of them who are affected. Mm-hmm. And they they politicized the issue, which was annoying because it, it's it's human rights. Like it, it's their, it's their lives. You can't, mm-hmm. anyway. But yeah, that's the first I heard of it. And as you can imagine, I was incredibly angry. I think it was about nine or 10,000 kilograms of mercury. Oh my God. Jesus. Into Ugh. the um, English, English something river. I can't really remember, but um, yeah. So I think, yeah, yeah it was during um, 60 and throughout the 70s. I don't think they were called out until the 70s. Mm-hmm. And be- they were called out 10 years later because that it, it took that long for the indigenous people to, first of all, realize what these symptoms were, make the connection. And it took that long for um, government officials to actually hear them out and take them seriously. Yeah. I, I think the moral of this story is that, or uh, one of the many, of course, is that there's a lot more like I, I spent hours and hours researching environmental racism, and we're, we're just skimming the surface. 
Like there is so much more that I don't know. And there's so many stories that have just been buried by the, uh, the ruling classes of history. Like it's, yeah. So remember, do your research, educate yourself. Listeners, you're doing good here, but go beyond plus ultra do everything, you know, all that. We're also, I'm, I'm going to take this time to do a quick disclaimer. We're, we're moving into a very indigenous heavy section of the podcast, the indigenous stories. And I am not, I'm not going to be able to pronounce everything very well. I'm going to mispronounce most, if not all of them. So I apologize in advance for that, uh, for my anglicization of things, but I'm going to try my best. Quoting from a paper by Cheryl Tiluxing from the Sociology Department of Ryerson University, quote, drawing on a theoretical analysis of the notion of intentionality as conceived in environmental justice literature, the argument is made that claims of environmental racism must include a direct connection between the agent's subjective racist intent and the powerful racist outcomes. In contrast, environmental racialization recognizes the agent's intentional actions can result in unpurposeful racist outcomes, even if those outcomes are systemic, which is what we were talking about before, that you you can do bad things to the environment in a way that isn't directly or intentionally environmentally racist, but the effects of those, the, the effects that your actions have on the environment will affect different ethnic communities differently and is therefore environmentally racialized. And I think especially because we're, we're just, we're touching quickly on indigenous, the story of indigenous people in Canada and how horrible it's been and is. Roshni, I'd like to pass the uh, talking stick over to you for a few minutes, if that's all right with you, to talk about a little fucker named Sir John A. Macdonald. Yeah, so he was, as I'm sure most of our listeners know, the first Hopefully. prime minister and was an asshole to say the least. Um, mm-hmm. So what he's d- directly responsible for um, putting into place the residential school system. Mm-hmm. Um, and he passed multiple racist acts, um, such as the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm-hmm. which banned Chinese immigrants from coming into Canada. It was later repealed, um, obviously, thankfully. He passed the Electoral Franchise Act. Those are just a few examples. And I'm sure whatever we have heard about how bad the residential schools were, it was much worse. I can think I can say that with certainty. Um, They weren't just stripped of their culture. They weren't just, you know, banned from speaking their language and torn from their families. They were used as slave labor within those schools. Mm -hmm. They were, uh, the kids that went were at those schools, they were, you know, they were responsible for janitorial duties. They had to wake up super early in the morning. And after their Catholic education throughout the day, once they had their meal, they were responsible for cleaning up. They were responsible for all the janitors of the class, of the school. And on top of that, when these students got tired of being treated the way that they were, and they started riots, and they started protests, the punishment that was given to them was starvation. So they were just not given their meals for a couple days as punishment for causing disorder. So I don't know how anyone can sympathize with a man that put this system in place. And his family in the UK, I believe, were also tied to the slave trade. And his family owned slaves. So we already know that he kind of came to Canada with the mentality that people of color were inferior. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's that. I did start researching further into his, I guess, legacy, you can call it, when I 
looked into wanting to get the statue down in Kingston. But unfortunately, that hasn't really gotten anywhere because the mayor's office is ignoring my emails. There's, but that's um, okay. There, there's, a, there's one quote. I, I haven't done very much research on, on the intricate bastardries of John A. McDonald, but I think there's a quote I have from him that pretty well summarizes exactly how horrible he was. Quote, the great aim of our legislation has been to do away with the tribal system and assimilate the Indian people in all respects with the other inhabitants of the Dominion as speedily as they are fit to change. As speedily as they are fit to change, that, that you know, I think you, you can kind of see the personification of, of what he meant by that when you talk about starving indigenous children who wanted to continue being indigenous. Yeah, like, and it wasn't... Yeah. And it wasn't just the children either. Like uh, mm -hmm. these tactics, like starvation tactics, as they're called, um, they weren't just used in the residential schools. That's definitely the, I guess, the, the most horrifying part because they were children. Yeah, but he used them um, just on, on, on communities of indigenous people. He would basically block off their access to um, the rivers that they fish in, or he would, um, um, what's the word? He would like ban hunting practices um, saying that they weren't civilized, quote, and that is a tactic that he used to starve out indigenous people. So this was, it's not even indirect genocide, it is direct massacre of the indigenous yeah. peoples because denying them access to their way of life. They couldn't feed themselves because they couldn't fish, they couldn't hunt. You know, there, there's one thing that I'll say for the horrors of American history, and that's at least in many of the cases, you can point to, like, a gunshot and be like, yeah, uh, this racist old Confederate guy, like, went on a killing spree, like, you know, Custer's last stand, stuff like that. There, there, are, there are very direct battles where we can be like, oh, yeah, a bunch of people died and they were killed for no reason and it was really horrible. But with Canada, we're so much more British in that we're just like, oh, we're not going to shoot them. We're just gonna take away their traditional way of life and starve them. I, that'll that'll do the trick. That'll that'll get these savages off of my farming land to be. I'm gonna continue. Return us to the environmental injustice uh, track. Quoting from the same Randolph Halusa paper that I that I did before. Quote: Aboriginal peoples are faced with considerable environmental injustice in terms of abrogation of treaties, land rights, and resource management and living conditions. These cases must be placed in the context of the history and social consequences of Canadian colonialism, alongside past government policies to eradicate or assimilate Aboriginal peoples. So that kind of ties back to the whole, like, we've, we've been at this for a long time. It's, it's still going on. Wet sweat and pipeline. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, returning to environmental racism, I'd like to quote from a couple different sources. In Environmental Racism on Indigenous Lands and Territories by Beverly Jacobs, she writes, quote, Prior to the discussion of environmental racism, one must understand the relationship of Aboriginal peoples to their lands, territories, and the environment. It is a very spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical relationship between human beings and their surroundings, end quote. A wonderfully pertinent expression of this culture comes from the Haudenosaunee clan mothers on land and environment issues in 2007. Quote, continuance of life depends on sustenance, and it is the duty of everyone to nurture and protect the land. 
As women, we have a special relationship to our mother, the earth, because we also give life and nourish children and the generations that come from us. We are responsible to teach and demonstrate that we are stewards of the natural world. The role must now encompass a much greater struggle that the indigenous peoples all around the world are facing in light of the industrialization and destruction of our mother, the earth. When discussing concepts of land and environmental issues in relationship to Aboriginal peoples, the two go hand in hand. Ecology is described as the study of natural communities and sociology is described as human communities. Environmental sociology is the study of both together. The single commons of the earth we humans share, sometimes grudgingly, with others. Environmental sociology is the study of this, the biggest community to all. And yet another quote, comes from a paper by Colomita and Wenzel in 2000. Quote, to indigenous peoples, land is not just physical and biological environment. The land is the ashes of the ancestors who fought to keep the land from becoming destroyed by others. The ancestors on whose shoulders we stand in this generation, land we must preserve for the next seven generations. This, this is a particularly uncomfortable point that I, I, I'm approaching on making. And it's that, I can imagine the more European-inclined listener might have a similar knee-jerk reaction that some of my own deep-set biases had when I first encountered these types of writings, which was thinking something along the lines of hogwash, harmony and peace and love are unrealistic, get real. And when confronted with, with that kind of thought, coming back to white guilt and fragility, I believe it's our duty as the advantaged ethnic groups to realize this type of deeply thankful and intimate relationships with the land that were their realities and in many cases still are. The very idea of humanity versus nature, of mastering God's creation, is only as real as it is ingrained in our culture. And to say that they are wrong or unrealistic for thinking all, all that I mentioned before is to say that the only true way to live is to be a white European. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Thank you. It's the whole question of progressing in, who, in whose standards, by, by whose definition of progress. Yeah, there's been a huge conversation within um, academia about different ways of knowing and why indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous knowledge aren't considered proper. Like they're, they're not considered proper enough to be mm -hmm. included in scientific research. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn from indigenous communities uh, about, you know, conservation, mm -hmm. about, about the practices that we need to adopt in order to I know it sounds cheesy, like you said, but yep. in, in order to live in harmony with the natural world, yeah, you know, there there needs some sort of balance. We can't just take, 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 and be like, oh well, it's unlimited. Mm -hmm. And I think the like indigenous people have have been aware of that, have been aware of the limitedness of Earth's res Earth, Earth's resources mm -hmm. for a very long time, and they've formed their practices around that knowledge. Which, which to me seems like the most wise thing of all, but some knowledge still isn't considered valid because academia is formed based on some random Eurocentric method of study. If it's not peer reviewed, it's not real, right? How's right. that going for you, Australia? <laughs> um, I, I don't know if you listened to my, my episode on Australia, but a lot of the fires going on right now are caused specifically because of the essentially genocide that happened from the Australian you know, newcomers from Europe to the to the indigenous peoples they had incredibly intimate relationships with their land and they would they they had some of the most sophisticated processes for for controlled burns and then we were like oh you should stop doing that and now the continent's on fire so can't wait to see what happens in canada 
slash is happening in Canada. Again, as with environmental racism in America and Canada, environmental racialization takes many forms and rears many ugly heads. Before going in-depth on any of the cases, I'll name just a, just a couple. Prairie farming. With the economic heft of corporations and their economies of scale, coupled with governmental policies that favor efficiency over community or environmental sustainability and increasingly exclude other values in favor of even greater commodification of agriculture, the result is further and further terraforming and modification of sacred traditional Aboriginal land. With regards to industry, chemical pollutants produced in the industrial energy production far to the south magnify and affect northern food chains, sustenance, and health meaning that while northern Aboriginal populations rarely see the benefits of industrial production, their people bear a disproportionate burden of changes to their economies and cultures. And then, of course, the aforementioned West Coast salmon farms. Now, once again, I think some of the best ways to tell the stories of environmental racism and environmental racialization is knowing that we can't touch on all of them. Like, was it... Grassy Narrows. Grassy Narrows. Yeah, that's a story that I haven't heard before, but it's very similar to so many others. So I'm going to hone in on one specific and intimate story of an indigenous woman named Guji Cook, who has been described by some, much to my delight, uh, as a combination Mother Teresa and Carl Sagan. So as to minimalize my interpretational biases, uh, I'm just going to read directly from one of the articles she wrote. Quote, I was born to a Mohawk woman from a reservation across the St. Lawrence River from Montreal, Cahawagwe, by the rapids. I was born into the hands of my grandmother, Kunatils, whose name she leads the village, continues to be handed down through the families. I became a midwife and was delivering babies to a family who lived within a mile of a Superfund site, which, if, if listeners remember, is a site that is marked as a contaminated site. When I was confronted with a mother's question, is it safe to breastfeed? I found I had no answers to this question, so I began to look for answers. I found out that our community, Akwasasni, that our community at Aquasasne, oh boy, is a veritable sink to the Great Lakes Basin. If you look at a map, you'll see that 25% of the fresh water on this earth is located in the Great Lakes Basin, or the Sweetwater Seas that flow out to the Great Ocean. We are the largest dump of polychlorinated biphenyls in the country of Aquasasne. 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 Oh man. Interjecting here, we're going to revisit polychlorinated biphenyls shortly to, to talk exactly how bad they are. Everything flows through us. We're a sink. We're where all of those byproducts of industry settle and bioaccumulate, biomagnify, move through the food chain, that sacred web of life that we're all a part of. Our research began with the mother's question in the 80s and has now emerged into the first human health study at a Superfund site that brings together the combined capacity of health research scientists, community members, and healthcare providers. Mohawk women themselves are co-investigators in the scientific research. We all share power and authorship of scientific papers. That interaction has yielded great fruit in the improvement of our community's understanding and has become a model of community empowerment and health realization. Doing environmental health research is very discouraging work. To know that the breast milk of every woman on this planet is contaminated with what our people call Wahekma, the bad stuff, the polychlorinated Wahekma. My sisters to the north, the Inuits of Kavungnatuk, have the highest documented levels of PCBs in their breast milk in the world. They're living in bush villages. They do not benefit from industrialized society, but they bear most of the risks because they eat sea mammals and these chemicals accumulate in the food chain. Wow. 
can you imagine living your life never seeing a Walmart and then having all the negative effects of the entire toy aisle put into your food chain? Indigenous communities are punished for being responsible. You know, so so all this new media frenzy about you know. Um, responsibly sourced product uh, or responsibly sourced materials. Indigenous people have been doing that for centuries, yet they're like they've been responsible for centuries, and they're being punished for that responsibility mm-hmm. for not yeah. conforming to our greed. Yes, for not conforming to our bad practices. Well, we know that what we're doing is much better for the environment than what you're doing, so we're going to continue doing that. Mm-hmm. And not only do are they punished for doing the right thing, they aren't getting the benefits of the of doing the good thing, mm-hmm. and they're getting the bad stuff for not doing the bad things. If that makes sense, my apologies um, for the lack of eloquence. But. <laughs> no, that's that's okay. Thank you. Returning returning to what she said, PCBs, aka polychlorinated uh, biphenyls. What are they? In a word, bad. Uh, this is probably the most biologically relevant portion of the episode of of, an, of a podcast called Biology Bobbles that we'll be touching on today. Polychlorinated biphenyls are a group of man-made chemicals. They're oily liquids or solids, clear to yellow in color, with no smell or taste. PCBs are very stable mixtures that are resistant to extreme temperature and pressure. They do not go away or break down easily, and they are prone to bioaccumulation. For those who don't know, bioaccumulation is the process by which low or moderate exposure to toxins enter the food chain and don't leave, resulting in very high concentration in organisms over time. Industries such as Formosa and Cancer Alley put out, intentionally or unintentionally, but but definitely knowingly, trillions of PCBs and other immunotoxic compounds into the environment. Now, what do PCBs do? There are three kinds of PCBs, and all of them are put into the environment, but there are two mostly to worry about, coplanar and non-ortho PCBs. The third, non-coplanar, are toxic and immunotoxic by interfering with calcium-based signaling systems, but not to the degree of the, f- of the first two. So we're going to focus on, on uh, coplanar and non-ortho PCBs. Coplanar and non-ortho PCBs are toxins in part because their chemical makeup is structurally similar to something called a dioxin, which can cause the activation of something called the aryl hydrocarbon receptor. This receptor is a transcription factor for gene expression, whose primary cause is to make enzymes to break down xenobiotic compounds such as drugs, carcinogens, and pesticides, but is also used in cellular differentiation, most famously in the lymphatic and neurological systems. What this aspect of PCB consumption means is that in developed humans and animals exposed to low levels of PCBs, whose lymph nodes and neurological systems have developed they, they won't die. High levels in, in mature people can cause dermal lesions, ocular lesions, fatigue, sores, headaches, irregular menstrual cycles, breast cancer, irregular temperatures, metabolism, heart rate, developmental issues, and lowered immune responses. But the effects on children only worsen. <clears throat> in a 2004 study, Dutch researchers Heistine J.I. Verugdenhill, I take a small solace in knowing that I'm as bad in pronouncing Dutch names as I am pronouncing indigenous names. Hestein J.I. Rugdenhill, PhD, found that lasting neuropsychological effects in infants who were exposed to PCBs through breast milk, as well as those who had prenatal exposure to chemicals. The researchers found that both high and low exposure babies who were breastfed for 17 or more weeks scored lower than formula-fed babies on the Tower of London test, a measure of executive function in which the children plan how to complete a complex task in a specified number of steps. 
The researchers posit that because areas of baby brains, such as the frontal cortex, which is associated with planning and executive function, continue to develop after birth, infants are more likely to experience negative effects of PCBs in the breast milk. So you don't have to look far to know that PCBs and other industrial neurotoxins are bad, if the name neurotoxin doesn't scream it loud enough. To get yet another idea of how bad this is, I quote from a 2002 summer edition of American Indian Quarterly, a section titled, the, quote, The Inuits Struggle with Dioxins and Other Organic Pollutants by Bruce E. Johansson. Quote, Thus, the Arctic, which seems so clean a place, has become one of the most contaminated places on Earth, a place where Inuit mothers think twice before breastfeeding their babies because high levels of dioxins and other industrial chemicals are being detected in their breast milk, where a traditional diet of country food has become dangerous to the Inuit's health. So it's not just that in the 1800s, when John M. Macdonald was like, we're going to make sure that the natives stop being the natives, and they, they, they become Canadians, uh, essentially. Like I said before, racists never went away, they just got smarter. So now, instead of being physically denied their food, we're letting them eat their food if they want, but if they eat it, they're, they're going to get breast cancer and their children are going to have de developmental issues. Yep. Like we talked about before, they just keep adding prongs to, the, to their... Yep. It's like every time, every time I think, okay, they, they've done the worst they can. There's nothing else that, that, that industrial society can do to be racist. It, and then it just comes out of the left field and hits you in the face. Nope. Nope. We're not letting, we're not letting their, um, we're not letting them. They can't even claim to be ignorant. You know, like a lot of the times I think I've heard people be like, well, we couldn't have foreseen these. Um, these mm -hmm. effects we couldn't have predicted that it would have such negative effects well you might have been able to because a lot of the times indigenous people have you know stood up for their land mm -hmm. and said you know what maybe don't build that thing here because <laughs> it's gonna fuck with our food supply maybe don't build a pipeline through our land because it's sacred to us maybe don't do this you know there have been yeah. suggestions there have been warnings there have been cautionary statements that have been released but in the name of profit those things have been ignored yeah and they, they've made excuses like oh you know yeah like we might like build something through your hunting grounds or poison your river mm -hmm. but hey you can always conform that option's always there you could be saved i think one of the one of the worst aspects of this too is that it's so common, and if, if, you, if you read anything that, is it William Koch, one of the Koch brothers, if you read anything he's written, it's just so obvious that he, it's like, he, it's like playing a game for him to, to see what's the worst thing he can do and get away with and not adhere. And I mean, you can see, you can see it all over. In the Ocean View hog farms, like I said, there was a 2005 bill that was being implemented where people are like, stop dumping hog shit on us. I'll even give you a tax break. If you if you do this to make sure that that hog shit doesn't come washing over our minority populations, then we'll make you pay less money. You can make money by not doing that anymore. And then they lobbied to say no, we want to like this this is going to keep it happening and you better you better get used to it. Uh, that's not just a capitalist behavior, you know, at at that point mm -hmm. it, it's racially motivated and yeah. it's or or it's just lazy, which is 
I don't know. The same thing. (laughs) Uh, They don't want to put in the effort to be um, racially sensitive and to be environmentally um, responsible. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're doing the exact opposite. They are fighting tooth and nail to make sure that they keep being racist. Good job, uh, Canada and America and most developing countries. I'd like to start to close this depressing and long and depressingly long episode of Biology Bobbles with a few more depressing thoughts. Racism, left unchecked, is a self-fulfilling prophecy. In countless examples, society can judge a group of people without looking the necessary level deeper. For example, African Americans must be naturally violent or unruly because more of them are arrested, saying nothing of the disproportionate policing of black neighborhoods and the racist foundations of police institutions. The Inuit bearing the suffering of miscarriages and birth defects must be a result of their primitive way of life, not the industrial compounds that we poison them with. The children of Flint, Michigan must be dumb because they are black, not because we let the levels of lead in their water remain unsafe to drink. Black lives matter and no one deserves the disproportionate treatment in every aspect of life that marginalized communities see in modern day North America, as well as worldwide. Now there are some courses of action that are being recommended to take that were proposed by the United Church of Christ Commission for Racial Justice's Report on Toxic Wastes and Race at 20. A few of them are, uh, one, codify the Environmental Justice Executive Order 12898 to provide significant impetus. I would argue an existent impetus so that they can actually do anything or hold anyone accountable and hopefully will. Fix Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that currently requires proof of intent rather than disparate impact to prove discrimination. So right now, under Title VI, companies can say, oh, well, you, you guys just happened to be there and you guys just happened to all be black and we didn't, we didn't mean it like that. What are you saying? We didn't mean it like that. Uh, and they can just say that legally. They'll, they'll be off scot-free to continue doing exactly what they've been doing. So their, their proposed fix would say that it doesn't matter the intent because intent is, is too subjective to base laws on. Instead, we just prove disparate impact. And that equates to discrimination, which I think would be very good. Hold congressional hearings on EPA's response to environmental justice communities so that the hundreds of complaints that have gone more or less completely ignored since the 90s would be less ignored. Enact legislation promoting clean production and waste reduction and many, many, many more. There's one that they didn't specifically touch on, but I'd like to add, do not vote for Donald Trump. It's a good place to start. Yep. Yep. Also, don't w- vote for Kanye West because it's just as good as <laughs> yeah. voting for Donald Trump. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that a, a great small place to start um, would be, you know, before we start, you know, taking action, which is obviously the most that the best mm-hmm. that we can do. I think education, as we mentioned, oh, yeah. is the best and the, the easiest place to start. You know, most of us who are privileged enough to have access to internet, it's it's there is so much information on there. There's like there's mm-hmm. we. The Gen Z's generation no longer has an excuse. We can't say that the information wasn't there for us. We can't say that, you know, we just didn't know any better. Because, yes, we did. Mm -hmm. Or at least we had the chance to know better. The opportunity to know better, yeah. Yeah, and we need to seize that opportunity because... (laughs) Because otherwise this shit's going to keep happening. Yeah, and we can't say shit about how the boomers were awful because we're going to perpetuate the cycle. Uh So we we need to be educated and... I think that's the easiest place to start if yeah. other stuff seems too overwhelming. Because once you're educated, I think that any person with decent empathy will get angry enough to take action. 
And I hope that's some of what this this episode will help do. I tried to be as comprehensive in all the different uh, aspects of environmental racism that anyone walking away from this episode would be able to go into a conversation where people are saying, oh, that doesn't really happen or not in Canada or anything like that, and then have specific examples that they'd be able to present and say, no, actually, this is serious and this is happening. And uh, don't say that it's not because you're wrong. Yeah. I also, I also want to, as, as we approach the end of the episode, just uh, take a moment for some quick fact spitting so as to leave our listeners with a couple final numbers ringing their ears and for their environmental racism design friends, if, if you have any. Lead poisoning continues to be the number one environmental health threat to children in the United States, particularly poor children, children of color, and inner city children. Black children are five times more likely than white children to have lead poisoning. Studies have shown that higher lead concentrations lead to lower IQ, lower high school graduation rates, and higher delinquency. Uh, Another fact, 46% of America's housing units for the poor, mostly minorities, exist within a mile of factories that report toxic emissions. Another fact, between Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Michigan, and California, across approximately 1,200 public schools, there are 600,000 students attending schools that are within half a mile of federal Superfund sites and or state-identified contaminated sites. Finally, closing this episode, I'd like to briefly put in a word in about something very controversial and very modern, the Wet Sueten Pipeline. I just want to give a basic premise of it. I, I don't want to take as as much of a, a strong stance on this one. I want I want people to interpret it as they will in light of what I've said in this episode, it, be it for a for a mind exercise or whatever. And and, and I mean I've, I'd encourage you to share your thoughts, Roshni. The basic premise of the dilemma: five of the six elected band councils in the Wet'suwet'en Reserve support the pipeline, but the hereditary chiefs do not. And this has made uh, a conceivable argument that that they can make, thankfully, because the traditional Wet'suwet'en territory expands far beyond just the reserve, obviously, and is traditionally unceded. In 2014, Canada's Supreme Court ruled in a landmark decision that the Seal quote in nation in British Columbia had retained title to the territory that it had traditionally occupied. Not that this wasn't long and hard fought. The Seal quote in nation decision was the result of approximately 30 years of lawsuits preceding it. Therefore, if that ruling applies to the Seal quote in, it would also make sense to apply to the Wet'suwet'en people. And if the traditional land is still theirs, then it makes sense for the traditional hereditary leaders to be the ones to govern their land. Whether or not this is stupid or logical entirely boils down to this. Who are the Wet'suwet'en people led by now and under whose framework? The officials elected to determine the fate of the reserve under Canadian law are recognized, but the traditional hereditary leaders are not. Whose side then is to be right? Some people will say that empirically, the pipeline makes sense because it will bring jobs to the reserve. Others will point out that jobs are only empirically favorable because we have constructed our society to desire jobs. And this facade of empiricism is ironic in that despite claiming no bias, it favors a decision that worships European materialism over the spiritualism of the land. And I mean, for me, I say if they can't all agree, go the extra mile to find a workaround, like building the pipeline around the land, or maybe don't build it at all. I think one of the things to learn from this entire um, Wet'suwet'en, um, I don't want to call it controversy because... Mm-hmm their lives and it's their spirituality it shouldn't be a disagreement it's anyway but that's a whole story um 
I think the main lesson takeaway from this is a lot of people still think that, you know, indigenous, that injustice against indigenous peoples was or is a thing of the past. And it hasn't happened in so long because, you know, they have, you know, extra rights. And like if they identify as indigenous, they can get to learn special reserves and these tax break all this stuff and a lot of people are misinformed about these situations but the thing is obviously it's not a thing of the past because indigenous people are still fighting for their land they're still fighting for their spirituality this is 2020 mm -hmm. so clearly it's not a thing of the past clearly our government hasn't learned and they aren't trying to do better right like they yeah. could they could create 20,000 truth and reconciliation committee to care, but until concrete action is taken and until changed behavior is seen, mm -hmm. it, it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And I think that what you said about um, the hereditary chief still being in control, that, that's, very, that's a very good example of how European... Um, legal processes have disadvantaged the indigenous people because yeah. how we decide like they just decided to what like elect like chiefs to 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 speak for all indigenous communities like the due diligence wasn't done to make sure that the elected officials of the indigenous communities actually represent the indigenous people and what they want because you can see like based on what we've seen in the news, it is clear that the indigenous people didn't want this pipeline. They want yeah. to protect their land. It is sacred to them. It's, it's a spiritual thing. Also, even if it wasn't spiritual, like for, for people who aren't very mm -hmm. spiritual or not religious, it's their yeah. land. It's unceded territory. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good way of putting it is that like, even if um, the people that have agreed to go along with Eurocentric way of way of life, the, the, the people elected in the reserves, that the Canadian government set for them. Um, okay, let's let's assume that they they have you know absolute power over that reserve. That doesn't change the fact that the the traditional hereditary leaders that have been you know supported in this other Supreme Court court decision they have legal rights to their unceded land, and so it it doesn't matter that just this one area that has agreed to comply with Canadian standards for for legislation. Uh, it doesn't matter that just they agreed to it if it was just them that's that's a whole other story but it doesn't have to be a whole other story because the, because it's not because there's the because there's this hereditary bubble or, around them this this huge swath of land that was never given up and so if as this other court case would attest this is still their land then it doesn't matter what what people in one portion of it say because there's still all this other area that's unaccounted for that is spoken for by the hereditary chiefs that Canada tries to silence. And more importantly, thank you for sitting with me for two and a half hours on the longest ever episode of Biology Bobbles. How does it feel? What are you, what are you gonna do now that you're free? Uh, go shopping oh, for groceries. But, uh, okay, remember to, remember <laughs> to shop local if you can. Yes. Um, I'm also going to send another email to the mayor's office because Good. they've been ignoring me for like a week and a half now. So. Keep doing things and being progressive and um, educating yourself and you two listeners and everyone in the entire world. Please do your best to do that. I'm going to go take a fat nap. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for for joining me on this journey. Yeah. Just the last comment. Um, mm-hmm. I think that one of the things I saw online recently it said, um, "I don't know how to convince you that you should care." You know, like for yeah. for the listeners. There, there's no real incentive to, to, to why you should educate yourself. But mm-hmm. the point is that it's your moral duty. You know, you should care. We should educate ourselves and whatever what's right simply because it's right. It's definitely a little, a little, um, yeah. like a little, little blurb that they can take away their conversations. You know, if you don't, if you don't remember Executive Order One Two Eight Nine Eight, that's fine. But mm-hmm. if you walk away from this episode remembering i don't know how what, what, what was it i don't know how to convince you that you should care that yeah 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 then i'll be happy um, and i'll be happy yeah. that um that that you listen to the end of the episode thank you <laughs> and have a have a great rest of your days listeners but not too great because environmental racism is still happening so <laughs>